I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. It really matters what today's guest thinks. This is because he has one of the biggest and most influential insurance and reinsurance management jobs in the world. Stefan Golling serves on Munich Re's Board of Management and until recently was its chief underwriter. He also looks after global clients, the North America division, and oversees HSB and American Modern, as well as the Lloyds and Bermuda markets. What I enjoy about talking to Stefan is his disarming frankness. He speaks very clearly for someone in such an elevated position in our industry. In our chat, we cover everything anyone would want to know ahead of the 1st of January 2022 renewals. Up until now, many have described reinsurers as a relatively benign influence, content to ride on the coattails of their sedents as they remediated their books and brought pricing back into line. Now, I'll leave you to decide if this is just a little bravado on Stefan's part ahead of upcoming renewal negotiations. But from this encounter, I would expect to see reinsurers digging in a little more than they have been up until now. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Stefan, thank you so much for giving up some time, for coming back to talk to the Voice of Insurance. We spoke probably this time last year. I've been reading up on some of your latest announcements. Obviously, at this time of year, we tend to have more media focus on reinsurance than usual. Something I read that you'd said recently was that there were no diversification benefits from underpriced risks. So that implies that you think there still are some underpriced risks. So where are those underpriced risks today? Yeah, hi, Mark. First of all, nice to be back with the voice of insurance. Sorry, I should be more polite and just welcome you on the show. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you, I think your, your quote is correct. I said this with Steve. With Steve there is no diversification benefit from underpriced risk. And I hope you don't disagree with that because, you know. No, no, as a, as a principle, absolutely not. Of course, I mean, I suppose that's the VJ Dowling's diversification. True. Diversifying into five lines of underpriced business doesn't help you. It might help you in some mathematical sense, but you're still going to lose money, aren't you? But if you don't get more money than what you actually expect to pay for, <laughs> then there's no margin, that there's no positive return on the capital, even if the capital due to diversification is very, very small. So 
if you expect to lose money, there's no point in writing the risk for whatever reason. So, but to your question, where is risk still underpriced? So when you look at this question, maybe more from a bird's point of view, then I think no one would disagree that overall in the insurance and in the reinsurance market, of course, the returns in recent years, they haven't been brilliant. They haven't been outstanding. They haven't been comparable to many, many other industries. So uh, from that perspective, I would say it's not actually needed to talk about individual buckets. It's simply we need improvements across the board. That would be good for all of us, for the primary insurance sector as well as the reinsurance sector. At the same time, when you look a bit more closely towards it, then I think one also would agree that the returns on the insurance side have actually been better than on the reinsurance side. And whilst we have now seen that the rates on the primary insurance side have grown, have increased since at least 12, 18, 24 months, basically also across the board and basically most parts of the world across major lines of business and so on, I think that isn't the case yet on the reinsurance side. So on the reinsurance side, yes, we have seen again and again market corrections after bigger events. I mean, think back about 2017, HIM, uh, think back about the typhoons in Japan two, three years ago. Also, when you go further back in history, uh, Australian events or other big US events, usually after big nature catastrophes, of course, you have seen corrections, especially on the property side of the reinsurance market. Uh, however, when you think about other regions that weren't really majorly affected, for example, Europe, who has been spared for quite some time from big events, not maybe like this year, but for many years, we didn't have bigger losses there. Or when you think about markets where maybe the capacities are not the same as we talk about in the US and Japan, where you don't need billions of reinsurance capacity, but rather millions to get a program placed, then there we have seen a number of years of softening and maybe in the last 12, 18 months, the rates have stabilized. So there's certainly, there's still pockets out there, big parts of Europe, Asia, especially emerging Asia, Africa, where I think there's still room to get prices to an adequate level. And when you don't talk about catastrophe business only, when you talk about the non-cat lines, then I think it's also obvious that there are some segments that have bigger problems. When you think about the overall, I would say, economic trends that we see. So we have now this really low interest rate environment for many, many years. And of course, the long tail lines, especially the liability business, of course, is suffering from that. And I wouldn't say that the market corrections that we have seen there have been enough to balance both these economic impacts but also the underlying loss trends. And I think there it is important that the underwriters really do not just look back, but also really try to do a forward-looking underwriting that they also think about how these loss trends will continue. And from that perspective, I think I wouldn't call many liability segments, especially the US casualty segment yet, as a segment where I would say every risk is well-priced. So certainly, I think there one should expect further correction. So it's not, you're kind of cautious about US casualty going forward still. It's more like a, on a traffic light system is probably not red, but it's still amber. It's not necessarily green or systems go. The two questions are, are the rate increases that we have seen on the primary insurance side already enough to not only catch up with the loss trends from the past, but also actually to be sufficient for the loss trends that we will see in the future? Because very often, of course, the premium that we collect today, and we will only know in a couple of years whether they're enough. 
And then the second question, of course, more important for me as a reinsurer also, to what extent flow these price increases also through to the reinsurance market. And if, of course, in proportion of business, you can benefit more directly from the original market. But on the other hand, if some people out there think it's now time for commission increases, then I would completely disagree. I mean, reinsurers, they have to be able to also participate now in a hardening market or in a harder market environment and achieve finally our margins. If brokers are too much of a few that now when the original rates are going up, then also reinsurers can pay higher commissions then I'm not sure whether there is a sustainable proportion in a liability market. Because if we don't achieve our margins now, why should we stay in that market? And why should we be there when the market turns again and the original prices come down? I suppose if it's so good, why don't they just retain all of it then? And, <laughs> and I suppose also you do have profit commissions. So I suppose it's fair for you to argue that. I can see that you're setting your stall out ahead of what might be some interesting conversations that you'll be having in the next couple of months, I presume, Stefan. For sure. Renewal time is always fun. Absolutely. And obviously, the other big question mark still out there, and something that probably this time last year, the industry probably rightly parked and did not take hugely into consideration at the renewals would have been COVID. Obviously, now we're in a happier, slightly happier time, more optimistic time in respect of the response to COVID. And I'm just wondering how you're feeling now, now that perhaps the loss is beginning to mature a little bit how we're feeling overall about the industry's reserving position on COVID. I cannot comment on the reserving position of competitors or our clients. I would say overall, seeing that we expected maybe overall losses between 40 and 80 billion uh, were the, the rough estimates. And comparing this to the reported reserves so far, then I think we are still shy of, of such amounts. I think we're not in that range yet. And, and from that perspective, maybe I'm not so sure whether we have in the meantime sufficient reserves overall as an industry to cope also with maybe the losses to come, especially also from third-party lines of business. I think we have a very good handling in the meantime on the obvious lines of business. So when you think about the losses that we have especially seen from event cancellation last year, and we have seen the losses more from the health perspective or so, also on the life side, whilst losses, they are still going up. So nowadays, there you have different accounting rules, so you can't really build up the reserves in a similar way than on the non-life side. And there, in these classes, I would say I feel comfortable. When you think about the uncertainties on the business interruption side or the so-called business closure insurance, then, of course, we have seen in the meantime major court rulings, especially, of course, in the UK market. There was also something on the Australian market. And I would say most of the players should have a good view on their either best estimate or worst case outcome in the meantime. Is that then entirely reflected in the publicly <laughs> released reserves? I cannot comment. We as Munich Re, we feel comfortable with how our reserving position looks like. But of course, I mean, there's still some open questions out there. I mean, uh, how some of the losses on the original side flow through to the reinsurance market. Also, there are not every case has been properly discussed yet. Do you think we might be having, again, this prospect for disputes and the classic sort of definition of an event type and how things aggregate disputes between students and reinsurers? Will there be disputes? I'm sure there will be discussions. So for sure, I would say we have seen very, very different views on the question of aggregation, depending, of course, also on the individual market, depending on the primary insurance policies, depending on the reinsurance wording and so on. And that we have these different views is, first of all, not good. This is something that we have to work on as an industry, that if we, a primary insurance company and the reinsurance company or several reinsurance companies, several primary insurance, 
don't have a common view on how to interpret the wording, how can we expect that our customers always understand the wordings of their policies? This is certainly something that we as an industry have to avoid going forward. Will we now see disputes? I think we will see discussions, but I also think that all sides will look for solutions, that they will look for, for compromise solutions, and I would not expect that we will see too many true arbitration cases at the end. But maybe still a bit too early to say, because I hope that some of those discussions uh, will start soon, but I'm not sure whether everything will be covered uh, prior to 1-1. Yeah. I mean, one thing is clear, I think. A reinsurer will never avoid paying a valid claim. And at the same time, I would also say that we as reinsurers expect from our clients, from the primary reinsurers, that they also respect when a claim was not covered. In the same way as our primary insurance clients expect this from their original customers that they also accept if something is not covered, then it cannot be simply paid. So to kind of summarize some of that, that COVID really, yeah, with the short tail seems to be coming more into view and becoming more certain, but it's the big incognito, the big unknown is the, is the third party liability. I was down in AMIC, which is you know, the UK Risk Managers Association's conference earlier this month, and I went to a seminar about this and there actually hadn't really been any third-party claims made yet, which was rather interesting. It was simply theoretical. And so we're talking about IBNR and IBNER and, and the theoretical mathematics at the moment rather than actual practical arguments. Do you think that's the case in a wider sense, maybe excluding the US where there's always litigation quite quickly? Of course, the hurdles are high that you can interpret a COVID-related loss into a liability loss. I mean, there's, I think, good reasons why not. On the other hand, I mean, we have seen now that we were initially also clear about uh, some of those business interruption policies, that there shouldn't be valid claims and still we're discussing them. So therefore, I wouldn't be too optimistic that the number stays around this, whatever, maybe is it reported around 35 billion at the moment. Uh, so I think there's still room that, that those numbers go up. And on the other hand, I'm also slightly optimistic that we will not talk at the end about the 80 or 100 billion range that maybe initially was discussed as well. Obviously, something else that's been going on and just another year with expensive catastrophe activity going on. What's happening to the psychology of the market? Is it just almost a sense? For me, it feels a bit like after 2004, 2005, where we'd had such a high frequency of quite severe events one after the other. Do you feel now we're at the stage where these 30 to $40 billion events should be almost expected year after year? Or do you think things will revert to the mean eventually? Well, I wouldn't say that we should expect a 30 to 40 billion event each and every year. That's not the case. I mean, we will have random volatility in there. There's not kind of just because of an underlying trend, a guarantee that you have the same event each and every year. At the same time, of course, what is also clear, we see those trends, especially, of course, uh, for the weather-related events. And I think there's also broad consensus that this has to do something with climate change as well. So when we see how the last, whatever, I think 19 out of the last 20 years are ranking under the, the years with the highest temperature, then there's obvious that something is changing, that there is an underlying trend over the last not only 10, 20, 50 years. So I think we see more weather-related losses. We also see quite often that the economic losses and the insured losses end up higher than initially estimated. To be frank, when I saw the first pictures from the floods here in Europe and mainly Germany, on the day when it happened, I didn't imagine this could become 7 to 10 billion, whatever loss event. So we see that not only more losses happen, but also with the increased values and increased insurance density, increased maybe also BI topics, interrupted value chains and business interruption losses attached to it. 
the losses get more expensive. And this, of course, we need to take into account in our underwriting. We cannot just look 10 years back, take the average, and think uh, we compare this uh, with the price going forward, and I hope you're not. At the same time, I also want to emphasize that I wouldn't agree to one thing that I hear quite often. At the moment, I hear a lot of comments about people saying that our models are wrong and that we talk about unmodeled perils and therefore we have a problem industry that we are not on top of our risks and so on. Actually, I don't agree with that at all. Models are models and models have always been models only. But underwriting should not be applying blindly models. I mean, the, the art of underwriting is something completely different. I mean, of course, we, we want to use models. We want to use the scientific input, the expertise of scientists. Not every underwriter is a geological expert, is a, is a weather expert. So we want to make use of such models to form the best possible view of risk that is possible. But at the end, we also, of course, need to apply then common sense as well. I mean, we need to think about what is the buying motivation of a client? How is the alignment of interest now, but also after the event? So the art of underwriting is much, much more. We need to take into account where do we have uncertainty in the data? Where do we have uncertainty in the models? Where do we have something not captured and so on? So therefore, I don't think that our problem are the models. I think we rather need to concentrate on doing proper underwriting. And then it will be no problem to also continuously underwrite nature catastrophe business on a profitable basis. So you're happy with the risk and you're happy that you can get a handle on that risk and that models will consistently improve and measure a lot of this stuff that we keep missing. Uh, every time we have new information, of course, we fill in the gaps that are then uncovered. But you're happy in general with property catastrophe as a class of business. You're not suddenly thinking, oh, no, it's just going to become uninsurable. It's just a question of getting the right price. Well, I would say when you compare a short-tail risk like property cat compared to a long-tail risk where you sometimes only can react to a risk of change after five or 10 years when you have actually written the book already, then I would say the property the risk is much easier to handle if you stay disciplined, if you do proper underwriting, and if you're also prepared to accept if you don't get the price for the risk, that you're prepared maybe to not continue underwriting it. I mean, when you think about some of the covers that we have seen out there on the frequency side, aggregate covers, I see a lot of underwriters being kind of attracted by the, what I call it, the perfume of high rate lines. You know, you see a 30% or 40% rate line and you find that attractive, but you're forgetting that maybe you pay a loss every year, every second year, <laughs> then you have a problem. So therefore, at the end, of course, you need to stay disciplined as an underwriter. And then I think there is no problem to underwrite property catastrophe risk. Something else that has obviously been maturing and developing over the last few years, and something that Munich Re has invested a lot of intellectual capital in. I remember this is cyber, by the way. And I remember perhaps at Monte Carlo, probably four years ago, your press conference at Monte Carlo was all about cyber and your thinking around it. And obviously, since that time, the business has grown hugely. I suppose at the time, it was a very nice growth opportunity in an immature class when everything else was not growing. But now, of course, the losses have started to come to match up with that growth and that maturity. But you've reiterated that cyber is insurable and that if we want to stay relevant, we need to have solutions, meaningful solutions for the clients that are going to buy that product. But I remember this was in a recent interview. You also said that this public-private partnerships are needed to cover the systemic risk. So how do you square that potential contradiction between stay relevant, but at the same time rely, if it is the state that's providing some major capacity, then how does the insurance industry stay relevant? Yeah, I think the fact that there are some risks out there 
that are just too big, too systemic to be covered by the private market is not new at all. It has nothing to do with cyber. I mean, we had this for many, many years. Just think about the very traditional risk, the risk of war. I mean, no one would argue whether the insurance industry could cover the risks from a bigger war. No one would argue whether we could cover all risks that could come from a nuclear contamination or so. And also when we think about the pandemic risks that we discussed last year. So I think there is an understanding that if risks are too big, too systemic, if we cannot benefit anymore from diversification, which is a fundamental principle of insurance, then we need to look for different solutions. And this is the same on the cyber side. So if you think about a major systemic event in cyber, then we don't talk about those increasing losses from ransomware that we have seen in the last 12, 18 months. But we think about a cyber attack on critical infrastructure, the power grid suddenly being down, uh, not affecting one individual uh, customer, but widespread areas. Think about the telecommunication being down. We have seen it uh, when Facebook was down, not uh, by a cyber attack, but by an issue ahead on their side. So what an impact that can have. Also, what business interruption that maybe could lead to if you have this. It doesn't need to be worldwide. It could already be enough to be US-wide or European-wide. And these kind of events, I think we need to develop private-public partnerships that we avoid that we are in a similar situation like last year after COVID, where but then we have, first of all, arguments, what is covered in the original policy, what is not, how is it working on the region side, and where then suddenly governments need to look for money to think about how we can help respond in the economy. I think there we can prepare ourselves and develop public partnerships. On the other hand, I think... That doesn't mean at all that the private market shies away from cyber risk. Quite the contrary. I mean, there is enough cyber exposure out there that is not systemic. So the individual ransomware attack, the individual problem of an individual company and so on. And the role, I would say, of cyber insurance is also not only to provide capacity, be it for a single event or for an accumulation event that maybe can be covered or for a systemic event that cannot be covered. At the end, I think the insurance market also has a role to play in preventing losses, so in increasing the likelihood of not being attacked or identifying the attacks and avoiding kind of the damage or the consequences, but also when something happened, that we help our customers how to respond to that, how to recover from such a situation. And there, presumably, we also need partnerships. We need to partner with uh, not the classical insurance kind of type companies, but the cybersecurity companies. And that, I think, is, works at the moment quite well. So there's an absolute role to play for the insurance market, despite of the need of talking about private-public partnerships for systemic covers. You're saying that that relevance comes from partly from being that conduit between the government and the original customer anyway, because you have that relationship with the customer. But we have the relationship, we have yeah. the infrastructure also, and also we have the risk expertise yeah. so that we can bring to the table, of course. And you can pay and you can fix the client, whereas, of course, the government doesn't really have any mechanism for doing this. I think the government solution is mainly then to organize a quick payout that immediately helps the economy to recover, maybe in a similar way as they did now <laughs> after COVID, but of course, in a much more organized way, it would be better and not just kind of in a reactive way, rather being prepared for something like that. You mentioned earlier about you know, the difficulty of modeling even quite static things like buildings. Obviously, the great interest of cyber is it's a totally dynamic risk, you know, that depending on what kind of version of software you've got at any different time or what kind of way of connecting you're using, et cetera. Are you confident that cyber modeling is going to become sophisticated enough at some point to keep all these cyber PMLs manageable? 
Or do you think we'll never be able to keep a handle on the risk that's this dynamic? It's so dynamic, it's changing every millisecond. You're right. I mean, the cyber risk is much more dynamic than a static earthquake risk. And we also have much less historical data to use for our modeling. And even if we had historical data, you mentioned that the risk is so dynamic that you could question, do the data of the last 10 years help you anything for what you expect for the next 10 years? So this underlying risk of change in cyber is certainly much, much bigger than, than even what we see currently on the weather perils, where we talk about the modeling challenges. But hey, I mean, we as the insurance industry, we have proven again and again that we can cope with exactly such type of dynamic risk. I mean, think back a hundred years ago, maybe it was engineering. 50 years back, we talked about, can we ever cover nut cut exposure? And again, maybe 20, 30, 40 years back, we talked about D&O or whatever, and we found solutions. So I think that the insurance industry has always proven that we cannot only bring up models, how we get a handle on the risk, but also, of course, that we can look for the adequate structures for the adequate coverage concept, how we can make the risk transferable into the insurance market. And you don't need to stop at cyber. I mean, think a few years ahead, then maybe we will talk about ensuring artificial intelligence. So the next challenge will come as well. So therefore, I'm pretty sure there is a chance to develop such models. We ourselves, we have invested now in this for more than 10 years. We have our own models. We partner with professional modeling companies, we partner with startups. So I think one thing is important, you need to accept that you need these partnerships. You will never be cleverer by yourself than maybe if you work together in an ecosystem where you bring different strengths, different access to data together. That's interesting about artificial intelligence. We've got beginnings of algorithmic underwriting happening in the insurance. In insurance, we've got a syndicate at Lloyd's, for example. How far do you think automated or algorithmic underwriting could go up the value chain? Obviously, part of what you do, of course, is already sort of automatic because it's portfolio underwriting, proportional treaty. But do you ever see at some point in the future where we could have a Munich Re automatic treaty just written in the market by an algorithm? I've been an underwriter for my first 20 years in this industry, and I think I always stay an underwriter. Therefore, I would, of course, hope that underwriters, or I'm actually convinced that there will always be the role of an underwriter needed. Uh, at the same time, of course, it's clear that I think both in insurance and in reinsurance, additional data sources, artificial intelligence, algorithms, they will incrementally lead to a certain automation of at least parts of the underwriting process, I would say. Generally, I would say we expect a higher degree of such automated or algorithmic underwriting, as you call it, in primary insurance rather than in reinsurance. I mean, already today, there exist uh, AI-based solutions which widely automate the underwriting process in primary insurance classes of business, where you have mass business with lots of data involved, where you have very simple coverages, very homogeneous classes of risks. But honestly, I mean, having the problem of big data on the reinsurance side, it wasn't the biggest problem that I faced in past years. I mean, there very often we talk about not enough data. And there, I think we cannot easily talk about algorithmic underwritings if we actually don't have enough data points when you think about cyber. I think where artificial intelligence will help us is also maybe in sourcing additional data to then do our underwriting. So we, we very often deal with very large and complex risks in reinsurance. And those, that the assessment of those risks, they require a lot of domain knowledge and a lot of experience. 
but maybe the algorithms will help us, will support underwriters to maybe structure risk-relevant information, to maybe observe the computer systems, to see the signals in the underlying data flow, to then maybe enable a, a better risk assessment, to then develop maybe also new databases to augment maybe then the, the decision base of underwriters for these type of specialists. So I'm sure algorithms will help the underwriter, but they will not replace the underwriter. And in terms of the quality of that data, how far away are we now from the real, doesn't necessarily have to be standardization, but the way of getting that data to flow up to you and then even to your retrocessionaires and ILS investors and other people to be able to everyone have the same sort of granularity. So they can all add their opinions and all add value potentially along that risk value chain. Do you think is that coming closer now? I would say the standardization of insurance data is certainly behind the degree of standardization in many other industries. So there exist some country-specific standards very often by local insurance associations, or when you think about the, the nutcut modeling, maybe also some data standards driven by some vendor modelers and so on that have to be widely used also for regulatory purposes and so on. But I haven't seen too many widely adopted international standards also beyond maybe the catastrophe business. But what we can observe is that this creation of digital insurance ecosystems or platforms that helps maybe to drive the standardization of also insurance data. And when you think about, again, artificial intelligence, then presumably Systems based on artificial intelligence, data management systems, they can drastically help to reduce the efforts to maybe to build these data structures and to migrate maybe data from different standards into common data standards. So I'm pretty sure we will see there a lot of progress also in the next years. And do you think some of the lack of progress is down to a cultural question? That almost that we have people along the chain who want to keep that data for themselves, who discount the value of sharing it so they can get insights with other people but, and want to keep for themselves. Is that part of it, do you think? I would agree. To some extent, the cultural issues, sitting on data and believing that gives you an advantage over your competitors. But I think it has also some regulatory reasons, of course, as well. It maybe also is some lack of awareness. When you think about personal data and how strongly those are protected in some of the markets or most of the markets by data privacy rules, by regulators and so on, then this maybe also leads to a very limited sharing potential, you could say. And then, of course, reputational risk play an important role in our industry as well. So that maybe also doesn't allow that you deal too easily with data. So there you want to be maybe on the safe side that you protect the data of your customers as good as possible. So in principle, I would say there is maybe little awareness of what data sharing concepts look like and what the benefits can be. But that could also maybe open up a role for us reinsurers. We can act as basically enablers in this respect. We can proactively address those topics. We can, for example, try to develop some data pools where we can maybe anonymize data, where we can then share the findings and maybe even provide some services that are appreciated by, by our primary insurance clients. Yeah. And do you think that culture is slowly changing to become more open? I think it is slowly changing. Of course, everybody talks about the new skills, the new ingredients to underwriting. It's not only the individual expert knowledge of an underwriter, but it's about technology, it's about data. So therefore, I think everybody also acknowledges it and therefore maybe will be more open to not only the use of data, 
but also then maybe to concepts where we partner with other industries, maybe where we even partner with competitors to share data and to tackle a new risk like cyber, for example. Something about competitors, obviously, since we last spoke, we've had this class of 2020. It was probably would have been far too early to talk about any of their impacts this time last year. But now that the class of 2020, you know, some new businesses, new balance sheets have come into the marketplace, um, have you noticed any impact that they've made? Yeah, maybe just some very brief comments. So I would say the last 12 to 24 months, of course, they certainly allowed new capital to come in. I mean, the overall market environment was attractive for new capital to come in, not having any maybe legacy issues and at the same time seeing the improving market environment. And some, I think, did a good job. They also uh, established themselves well. They have written a, a sizable amount of business. Have I seen them as a disturbance to the market? I wouldn't say so. I mean, I have also not seen any revolutionary new capabilities or, or new offerings. So I think they are part of the market. They're in the market. But I think the discipline in the market is still much more driven by the large primary insurance companies, also the large reinsurance companies. So therefore, I wouldn't call the class of 2020 a threat to the market. No, But it's just at the margins, then you're saying that I'm sure if you had a small program that you couldn't get a home at a certain price, maybe one of these guys would have helped complete something that would have otherwise had to reprice, I suppose, and has to make some effect. Well, since I'm not on the buyer side, but more on the provider side, <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether I should comment on when, when was the right point in time for them. I'm pretty sure, I mean, some of those work with, with people that have been in the market for many, many years that they are respected, of course, they should get a seat at the table as well. Yep. And actually, back on the technology theme of new businesses, you know, Munich Re has been hugely involved in the whole InsurTech scene with your digital partners division. InsurTech's really maturing now. Which of these, some of these new tech-driven business insurance models do you think are most likely to succeed now that we've had a long time to really think about them and see them in operation? I think our view there is currently that this insurance value chain that will be increasingly, how would you call it, modernized. I mean, this means that different players, not only insurers, tech companies or startups, they can or will provide specific functionalities with specific data, with specific expertise, specific technology, maybe not cover everything, but can be really good in a certain step of the whole process. And there, I would say there's the best play for them. If they just act like another MGA with a, maybe a tech flavor to it, I'm not sure whether they will be too successful. I mean, interesting could be platform models. I think we're sure they can play an important role there. Building ecosystems or platform within and maybe even across the insurance value chain that, that will help carriers and partners to perform certain functions, can perform certain services better, faster, and more accurately than maybe the traditional way, then that could be a successful area where these new tech-driven insurance business models can work. So something in reinsurance might work, do you think? Because, of course, at the moment, we have big three brokers often have all their own systems. Even the fourth and the fifth and the sixth brokers sometimes have their own systems, and probably you have your own systems. And you think, well, actually, we're all spending probably a lot more money on this than if we just had one system that we all work together on. And that is probably going to be far better if it's provided by a third party, who that is all they do. And that is their only incentive is to make the system really, really good. Do you think that might work in insurance? We've seen a few things emerge. And obviously, the problem is I've seen so many emerge and then die over 25, 30 years of looking at the insurance industry. 
What do you think the prospects are now for one of those platforms working? I wouldn't want to rule it out, I would say, but I'm not sure whether that is the first choice or so where someone with a good idea would look at, because I think yeah, it's, in the example that you described is maybe more about finding efficiencies, but yeah. I think it's more interesting, of course, for, for these new players to really develop a market, to increase the customer base, to really be close to the customers, to maybe own the customer. And there, of course, I'm not sure whether that is so attractive then to be on the reinsurance side and just providing a better platform, how the established brokers and established yeah. reinsurers and established primary insurers can play. Right. Okay. So it's get down to the customers is the way to win. I think so. Well, obviously, another thing that's really, really been bubbling away for a very long time, but it really seems to have almost exploded this year, is sort of the acronym of the year would be ESG, I would think, so far. So in your role as a major reinsurer, how can you support this drive to ESG and to net zero, but at the same time understand that we're seeing right at the moment, of course, constraints in our traditional carbon-based economy and energy supply is causing a lot of heartache and, and problems. So how do you as a reinsurer, obviously with a really major role to play in this, do that balance between you know, keeping the lights on and supporting economies that are probably or businesses that are very carbon heavy at the moment, but have a plan to become carbon zero at some point? What's your strategy on this? And obviously, we've got COP26 coming up and all sorts of things. So it must be quite a big thing on your desk at the moment. I think it is an important point where I think at the end, every business, every government, every maybe at the end, individual person has to make up their mind what is their view on climate change, what is their position on, on the decarbonization, are we supporting the Paris goals or not, and so on. Everybody, I think, is asked to make up their mind and then maybe also to articulate. I mean, we as Munich Re, we talk about climate change not since two or three or four years only. I think we have talked about climate change since 40 years and we did a lot of scientific research into climate change, of course, mainly also in order to understand or to benefit from our own underwriting and understand kind of the nature of catastrophe risk. But we also clearly articulated last year our climate ambition. So we fully support the Paris Agreement. And at the end, I think we have three levers where we can act. I mean, first of all, on our own operations. I mean, there we want to become net zero emissions neutral, I would say. But also, of course, on the asset side, I mean, there, I think the discussions have been out there for two, three, four years now already, how we deal with our investments and whether we are there becoming net zero. And then maybe you have seen that recently we have announced as one of eight founding members also the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, where we also support that we have to develop goals, clear milestones, how we reduce also the carbon intensive business in our liability portfolios. There, I think it's important not to immediately step out of the business and not underwriting anything more, but to define clear goals, how we support the transition in the industry, how we help that, uh, how we help those who are on the right path as well in managing that transition, in providing insurance coverage, maybe still to some extent for the old, for the not so climate friendly industry, but also, of course, for new cover for new technologies. So the insurance industry can play the role of an enabler for new technologies, as we have always done in the past. Uh, I mean, we have been good in ensuring performance warranties on wind turbines, on battery storage, on these kind of new things. And I think that is important that we are open to that and that we're actively supporting this going forward as well. So again, it's about our own operations. It's about how we manage our investments and then how we, on the one hand side, reduce the carbon intensive exposure on the liability side as well as providing insurance support, reinsurance support 
for new technologies that are needed to be successful in the transition. Thanks so much, Stefan. It's a difficult path to tread, isn't it? But I wish you really well on doing that. And at the same time, I'd like to thank you for giving up your time. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I've come to the end of all my questions and just remains to thank you very, very much and hope you have a fruitful renewal season. And uh, we'll speak to you hopefully sometime in the new year. Thank you, Mark, for the opportunity. And I look forward to speaking again in 12 months' time. Thanks very, very much. Thank you. Bye, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>